Hi, I'm BJ, and this is the Arcane Alienist Podcast. Hey everybody, I've got some calls that have come in the last few days, so I'm just going to let those roll and I'll, I'll respond to the calls interspersed and that's, that's, that'll be the episode. So we've got some calls uh, from, from a few friends and we'll just get into it. Thank you for listening. Hey BJ, cool to hear you playing Age of Ashes. I had looked into that one and possibly running it, but we decided on Extinction Curse because of the circus thing. Unfortunately, COVID sort of killed that. We were playing live, and then um, we had to play, you know, everything closed down, and then we had to play online, and people just kind of said, screw it. So I think a lot of it was, there was a one, a couple people who just could not get the Roll20, and it was frustrating for everyone else, and the, they said, uh, yeah, let's just stop, because it just wasn't working out, and people weren't showing up, so... So well, but Extinction Curse, we got like I would say two thirds of the way through the first book, and it's pretty cool. I love the circus mechanic. Um, it looks like Age. Of, it looks like it seems like in the first level dungeon crawl for all these Pathfinder Two adventure paths, there's some big monster that can potentially wipe the party unless you're lucky, right? So I mean, it's a common theme. Common. Oh, I also didn't ask. Are you playing this Pathfinder Two? What platform are you playing? Are you playing? Um, just zoom and dice are you playing on roll 20 or fantasy grounds i guess i didn't hear what what you're doing age of ashes on i think it works pretty well on fantasy grounds but i also did enjoy when we played hyperborea and i just said hey let's just roll dice or roll on the bot um i don't know maybe if we continue that again i'll do a roll 20 for it but uh, it seems like that was a spontaneous game although i really would like to get a hyperborea game regularly going because i like that um, I like the world. I like the adventures. I like the aesthetic, and I want to get you know you guys to get some some freaking ray guns and flying Atlantean sleds. That would be kind of neat. Hey, Carl. Uh, that was Carl Rodriguez of the Geomologist Presents podcast. Yeah, um, I noticed the common theme too <laughs> with this and with the Abomination Vaults, where yeah, we got kind of a mid-sized town with kind of all your basic needs and a cast of NPCs you can form relationships with, um, but things eventually lead you to a nearby dungeon that's close enough you can kind of go back and forth to town and explore, and yeah, I felt a lot of commonalities between the two. I mean, not not, not so much that it was boring <laughs> at all, it was a lot of fun, but I could see those common themes in, a, in those, and this, this is the second Second adventure path I've done with Pathfinder, so I'm I'm sure they'll that Age of Ashes and um, Abomination Vaults will differentiate themselves more the longer we progress in those games. So, but we are using <clears throat> excuse me we are using a uh, Fantasy Grounds for this as well. So um, it's all familiar to me. <laughs> Having played with in Fantasy Grounds in Pathfinder Two with with you for um, for Abomination Vaults, so. Yeah, um, and I think it's everybody else. We've all played together, and we've all played together in Fantasy Grounds. We've just never all played Pathfinder 2E in Fantasy Grounds, so everybody's still learning the rule set for Pathfinder 2E, and the, the setup for 2E, 
Pathfinder is deceptively similar to the MS interface for D&D 5e. So we're, we're having to... Why, this is, why is this not working the way it's supposed to? Oh, oh, that's because this is the Pathfinder rule set, not the D&D rule set. It, it's not exactly the same. So we're, we're learning the ins and outs of it there. Um, but having a good time with that one. So um, and, as, and, of course, as always, having a good time in your Pathfinder game. So. Uh, with Hyperborea, that was a cool setting. I, uh, I immediately put the uh, put that on my my list of next time I have a little bit a little bit of extra money to put into a new game product to go ahead and do the the uh, backer kit for for third edition Hyperborea. I think we'll, when I do that, you get the P, go ahead and get the PDFs. I'm hoping so. Um, is it a backer kit now, or is it pre- technically pre order? Whatever whatever it is. So I'll get the hardbacks, but can hopefully have the PDFs immediately. Um, yeah, it did seem like a pretty cool world, and I liked. What I liked about it is it's it's, a, you know, obviously a variant of AD and D, but they changed enough of the classes with with the way they. The terminology they use, the ones they kind of named a little differently, you know, you have a huntsman instead of a ranger. You've got a, you know, cataphract instead of a cavalier. Um, just just the way they chose the classes and tweaked them enough and renamed them so that it really reinforces the theme of this is a pulp sword and sorcery world, not a not a medieval high fantasy world, um, which I, I really, you know, I would love to see other. It would be cool, you know, not not to not to replace Hyperborea, but it would be neat to see other. Um, other attempts at some of the, the cool rule sets that are out there for for different editions of D and D and Pathfinder and and other types of games that would do that. Kind they kind of do the work for you. They reinforce the theme for you because uh, I don't know. As a DM, you can just say you know pretend your fighter is a Myrmidon and pretend your barbarian is a you know a very much a, a Gaulish or a Germania. You know you're trying to re- reinforce some sort of Bronze Age theme, but they're reading the books that D D and D presents <laughs> as uh, as is, and, and for some reason, no matter how much as a DM you tell players that, I think sometimes they default back to thinking of D and D in very Tolkien esque terms. Um, so it's kind of cool to have a version of it that's just different enough that it kind of pulls you out of that that habit or that those automatic ways of looking at things. Um, Anyway, yeah, hopefully we can play we can play Hyperborea again. So I would love to get my hand on a ray gun and a sky sled and then uh uh you know you know, if I could have a bastard sword and a ray gun and a battle axe and a sky sled, I could be He Man. Like you know, all I would ask from that point on is to give me a giant green tiger to ride into battle. Um when when I can't use my sky sled. Make it happen, Carl. Make it happen. I guess this is a response to the Buffy talk. Just look up on YouTube, Buffy the Musical, and that's probably the only episode you need to watch. Uh, well, I mean, I love that episode. I've watched it multiple times. I even like the music, you know. Did I buy the soundtrack? No, but I would if I could find it. I probably have it like somewhere on my Amazon music list, I'm sure. But I really enjoyed Buffy the Musical. Um, 
there's a pretty neat storyline that that opens up and takes place of course a lot of spin-offs like angel and others well you know it kind of makes it makes me want to run etu more too bad that game kind of flopped um even though maybe they were scared because amy said she was going to play and then uh i don't know or it could be just time or people being people anyway uh yeah buffy watch it well, thanks for the advice, Carl. I'll have to check it out when I have some, some, some extra time to do that. Uh, it sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> hey, BJ Jason here. Huh, I didn't know Joss Whedon wrote for X-Men. I never got into X-Men like everybody else did, though, so maybe that maybe that's why I didn't know that. I, they weren't one of the comics I really followed. Anyhow, I will talk to you later. Great recaps, and I look forward to playing any game with you soon. Uh, that was Jason Connerly of the Nerds RPG Variety Cast. Yeah, Jason, uh, Joss Whedon. He, he didn't write a lot of X Men. It was and it really, it was the uh, I think it was two thousand three, two thousand four. He wrote twenty four issues. It was the Astonishing X Men, Volume Three of the Astonishing X Men comic book series, issues one through twenty four. Um, that's what he wrote. Um, so uh, he didn't. Uh, he didn't, and he, uh, he contributed to the early early drafts of the scripts of the first X Men movie. Um, I think before he wrote that, but yeah, if you think of the classic heyday of the X Men in the '80s, that was all Chris Claremont. Um, yeah, you know, Whedon didn't get involved until just for that short run of, of 24 issues in, uh, in in 2000. Yeah, 2003 to 2004. Um, but he did write in in that the storyline. You know, the third X Men movie which he didn't, I don't think he took part in the production of that. But uh, the third X-Men movie was, of course, their first attempt at adapting the Dark Phoenix saga, but they interwove it with a second story line about um, a mutant cure. Uh, and that was part of Joss Whedon. That came directly from Joss Whedon's um, run on Astonishing X-Men. That, that's that part of the storyline he wrote in the comics, and then they, they based part of the movie on that. So, uh, yeah. So, yeah, he did write X-Men, but he's not, you're thinking of the major co contributors to the to everything X-Men. I don't think he's, he's not up there with the guys like Chris Claremont and Jim Lee and Scott Lobdell and, you know, people like that. Hey, BJ, Jason here. Enjoyed your Westworld episode. I think that's important to do whether you're running a pre-written game or not, you know, pre-written module or not. You need to know your NPCs so you can give believable reactions to what the players do or have them continue in doing what they're going to do. I prefer not to run pre-written modules given the option, but the NPCs are still going to be doing what they would be doing. And, you know, there still may be plots and things going on depending what the characters do. And if the characters interrupt them, then obviously that's going to change how those things timelines work and whatnot but yeah so I, I i don't think it's a pre-written module thing but i think everything you said is 100 percent valid and i think it's great advice a couple other quick thoughts our talzorian games the cyberpunk they put out a mike pondsmith wrote a game in 1992 called dream park based on a 1981 i think larry niven novel where it's basically LARPing in the future and, and 
then shenanigans and mysteries the party's trying to solve. There's like four novels in the series, but so in that RPG, you're effectively playing LARPers, or, or actually, you're, you're most close to playing MMO, MMOers. It's kind of interesting. It's a cut-down version of the interlock system from Cyberpunk 2020, but of course, because of the problems with IP that we've talked about in the past, you, you can't buy it anymore because the license has expired. So, you, you have to find it on the used market. I don't know that it's worth what... It, the price of commands on the used market, but it's interesting. I guess the last idea that ties in with this stuff would be that of, you know, the morality, and you bring that up. Is it moral? Is it okay to go to a park like Westworld and do whatever you want? I mean, obviously, that's what the designers of the park intended you to do, but is that okay? And, and that brings up the idea of playing an evil character. And I think when you're playing an evil character, be it an MMO or an RPG, or you go to Westworld and, you know, do all those evil things, I, that's interesting because people also said that, you know, they, they question the morality of watching, say, horror movies. And I think there's a difference in the voyeur, I don't know, is there the voyeurism of watching a horror movie or reading a smut novel? and actually acting the things out, playing them out. Because I don't think that people that watch horror movies, even your, your crazy, depraved horror movies or, or jallos and things that I watch, the, well, I watch pretty much everything, but that's not the point. The point is I don't think that people watch those things are necessarily depraved people. And, and there have been studies, and I would have to go cite them, so I'm kind of talking my butt here. But I know I've heard the idea that because people are watching, getting their thrills out through watching them on TV or getting the, you know, getting shocked and scared by watching these things on TV, it, it actually is kind of a healthy release to watch it that way, to experience it that way. I, again, you, you may be able to find the studies quicker than I could, but, but is that the same thing as actually going to the park and acting it out? I don't know. You know, it's an interesting question. Yeah, Jason, I think there's nothing wrong with being a fan of, of horror movies and of that genre or, or of horror novels. Um, yeah, it, you know, I think, I think the question comes when you read a horror novel or you watch a horror movie. You know, you're, you're, you're watching, you're, you're kind of watching or observing or reading a story if you star as an actor in a, in a, in a play or a, or a movie or a TV show where, where you're the bad guy you're, you're playing a role but you're not really doing those things you know you're doing it knowing that there's going to be an audience observe you and, and your fellow actors tell a story but when you get into role playing you know, you're now you're making decisions that you don't. You, no one is. You're not following a script. You're you're not passively absorbing someone else doing something, and you're doing it yourself. But you're not following a script. You're making the decision to do those things, and I think that's where the the question starts to go. Is this is that okay? And I think I think it's 
I've had a lot of good friends where I've been in games where they played evil, creepy characters, and it's been they play it to entertain everybody, and it's great. And there's been a couple times I've been at a table where I was really disturbed by the person because I felt like they weren't doing it because they were exploring a way to um, just just have fun playing a role. It really felt like this. This is just kind of creeping me out. You're getting a little. Too, you, you like this. You're enjoying this is a little too much. There's, you don't have that wink and nod. There's not that tongue-in-cheek element to it. Um, you know, would you really treat people this way in the real world if you get away with it? You know, but that's been rare that I've ever experienced that. Not with any of my friends necessarily, but a couple of people I've been to pick up games with, like game stores and stuff like that. Um, but then, you know, it's one thing to set in a role-playing game a tabletop where it's all in your imagination and you're just describing things your character does. Take it a step further in an MMO where you're controlling an animated character. You know, it's like Grand Theft Auto. I mean, people, people get freaked out about the stuff you can do in Grand Theft Auto. Um, but then, well, I guess what we don't have now, which, which would be a question of would it cross another line, is... Now I'm role-playing, and I'm making the decisions to engage in these kind of uh, immoral or violent or uh, antisocial behaviors. But the object is still not another person, but it looks like a person, and it feels like a person, and it reacts like a person. And it's English, it would be indistinguishable from a person if you didn't, someone hadn't told me, hey, that's, that's just an animatronic. This is an android. It doesn't have, it's not a person, there's no sentience there. Which, you know, the story in Westworld is, you come to find out, it, the androids do develop sentience, and then you think, well, do you really hold the people who've been mistreating them up to the point that we realize that accountable, or they didn't know they were doing anything, right? Wrong, they didn't know they were hurting, effectively, a person, even though it's an artificial intelligence. But, assuming that the androids don't aren't sentient, they are just machines that they're they're following their programming um there's just one step closer to the reality you know would you you know in D D, would you would you would you murder somebody over at the edge of town when nobody was looking and take take all their money you might depend on the kind of carrier you're playing if if you're in an uh, an, an mmo video game it's more like a virtual reality. Would you do that? Again, you're, you're you're controlling a joystick or some buttons on a game controller. If you had to physically walk up and plunge a knife into the back of something that looked an acted human, even though kind of on some level, even though you logically know it's not, or put a gun to its head and pull the trigger, even though you know it's all made up and that's not real money, and you know you can go spend it at the saloon in Westworld and get drunk, or or have a meal or whatever, but it's you can't carry that money out into the real world, you know. But still, you gotta you gotta physically do it. You gotta engage in it, and it's not a prop knife. It's not a well, it is a prop knife and a prop gun, but the uh, but it, it, it's indistinguishable, indistinguishable from reality, except that you just know it's a simulated reality. I don't know. I mean, I probably we really couldn't truly answer that question until we get to the point that we have sophisticated technology to actually 
do it. But you can see the kind of progression I'm talking about there. So it's an interesting question, and I'm sure it, you know, lots of people are going to have lots of different opinions on it. Um, so, but yeah. Um, but I'll have to, if I, if I get a chance, I'll have to check out the, uh, the, the novel you mentioned. Um, so thanks for the calls. I appreciate it. Take care. EBJ, Daniel from Venice, keep calling in a uh, great episode about Westworld style, I guess, LARPing. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that that is amazingly good advice and exactly how I run the game when I'm running a campaign. Uh, what I generally do is I have a list of uh, like events or people in just in a notebook, essentially. And then after each session, I will just sit down and I'll just write next to that person uh, where they currently are, like what's happening. So like, let's say you've got a plot where, you know, bandits are robbing people and they've got a reason they're trying to collect enough gold to, I don't know, uh, raise back from the dead uh, lich. I don't know why they do that, but what they're going to do is I'm going to track how much gold they're getting. And then if they don't get stopped, eventually that lich is going to be raised and then that'll start a whole new thing. So that's exactly how I do it. I think it's really great advice and uh, awesome episode. Daniel Norton of the Bandits Keep. Thank you, Daniel, for the call as always. Uh, yeah, I think that's a good exactly you yeah it's a perfect uh example of what i was talking about you know just keeping keeping some little notes to yourself about what what's going on um and then if the players ever come back around to encounter the consequences of that choice or that lack of choice or whatever they did that's that's uh good for your world building you know to to uh and then to, i think it really makes the, the world feel real when they realize hey things kind of went on without us when we we went off in the other direction. So, uh, thanks again for the call. Talk to you later. Hey, BJ. Thanks for reminding me. I think I stopped at the end of season two and was getting on to season three, and then I haven't watched it, even though we have HBO Max. It's just hard. You know, we have one TV and we share it, and usually we watch what Annie wants to watch. So, um, yeah, I got to get back to that and check out the Westworld. I also liked how they had not just like Westworld, but other worlds too, when they, when kind of in the expanded universe, which I thought was kind of neat. Um, so anyway, thanks for talking about this. It's pretty cool. Hey, BJ. If the NPCs do something without the players being there, isn't that delving into a story game? I thought Emergent was... It only happens if the players dictate what happens. So I I agree. I think it's a great idea to have motivation for the NPCs and the story continues despite what the players do. But how many times have you sat at the table when I, when the GM asks, okay, what do you do now? Well, I don't know. What does the story tell us to do? I mean, some it's kind of a weird thing. Sometimes players don't want to take the action or do the thing. So then uh, what do you do? You have the story play out in the background like you just suggested. I think that's a great idea. And um, I don't know. It's very interesting. Yeah, I think it's a very cool thing about RPGs is that the players can influence the story and change the way things might happen. But I think I, I play with players also who who enjoy that and like that and kind of get into that feeling of of interacting with the world and making choices and making decisions. And then there's other players who just try to say, well, 
we supposed to go this way? What does the story, what does the story tell us? But there really is no story for the most part unless you create the story. Yes, there might have been things that happened that you have to find out about, but, um, you know, I guess that's the importance of putting down clues and laying things down, but then ultimately it's the player's decision to do things or not. Instead of trying to figure, pick apart what we should do next, just make a decision. Yeah, I think that's an, an error a lot of players make um, of saying, what are we supposed to do? And, you know, when, when you're playing a rather linear adventures, uh, sometimes you get in the habit of doing that. Because, you know, even pre-published, uh, you know, well, adventure paths are a big deal. Pathfinder has its adventure paths, and, and D&D has its, its, you know, these, these big meta-adventures that take you from, you know, first to 12th or 13th level. Um, and that's kind of what, what are marketed right now for the pre-published adventures, at least in the, the contemporary games. And players kind of know there's some kind of big finale at the back of that book. <laughs> and they got to get there. They get the sense, even if they don't know what it is, they got a sense of that they've got to get there. And, uh, you know, some of those things are pretty linearly and almost railroad, lin- pretty linearly, <laughs> pretty linear, pretty linear, <laughs> Uh, and some of them allow a little more sandbox, and finding the balance there can be hard. Uh, you know, particularly if you if you've not DM'd or, or ran a lot of them. Um, so that's uh, I I know for me, my earliest DMing uh, was making up my own adventures, and so then you get busy. You only have you know once every week or two to play with people. You want to cut down on prep. You think, oh, I'm gonna I'll just, I'll just buy the uh, the adventure, and you, re- you read through it, and then I'll just run the adventure, and I don't I don't have to make everything up. But it can be real easy when you do that to just let, for the DM to set the adventure on rails, and almost telegraph to the player that there's a right choice here. Um, <laughs> and I've had to break myself of that and get back to you know deconstructing the adventures and, and making them my own and being flexible and things like that. And I think I'll talk about that. I think that is something that's going to, that's going to be a, a topic for my hundredth episode next week is, is about making things your own so that, so that um, it fits for you and the kind of game you want to run and, and, and ways to think about doing that. I think that's going to be the major topic coming up here uh, on my, on my hundredth slash one year anniversary episode in a few days. Um, so, but yeah, I think you're making some some really good points there. As far as this being a story game, yeah. What does that mean, a story game? I mean, I, I, I think we know. I think we're talking about a, a true story game as a game that's designed to build a story, versus kind of classic role playing games or designed to, to play a game, <laughs> and a story emerges from the gameplay. But it really only becomes a story when the game ends and everybody sits around and talks about what happened and tells their friends the next day. Or, or you recap what happened last time as you prep for the next session. That, that's, that's the story. Um, you know, the, 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 in the moment playing the game, you're playing the game, and then the story kind of comes out of it. Um, to quote or, or to paraphrase Matt, Matthew Colville, I think he's, he's the first person I've ever heard actually put it in those terms. But... Um, 
Yeah, I, I don't know that, that having the an idea of what happened when the players left town so that when they come back, something's a little different. I, I don't know if that makes it a story game or if that just makes it more of a living sandboxy campaign setting where your your choices have consequences. Um, you know, and, and uh, well, one, it's just interesting, the passage of time. I mean, you know, it makes the world a little more immersive and gives them players more things to interact with and riff off of and maybe improvise on when you, you know, when you left town, you know, you come back and there's a wedding going on. Well, but that could mean nothing. That has no nothing in terms of experience points or treasure or leveling up. It's just some NPCs are doing what NPCs do, and you might get some uh, spontaneous role playing and and some ideas for adventures or stuff just by having them interact with. Hey, what's going on? Who's getting married? You know. Um, but I was thinking more really last time about what happens when you know you. you say the adventurers are passing through town and there's a potential quest giver there and they kind of don't bite on it. They say, no, we got the, we've already got something else that we're supposed to take care of and we'll, you know, we're not really interested in that. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean that, that that quest goes unfulfilled? Is it just waiting for them if they come back and it's still available? For how long? And then if, you know, well, what if this old man that wants you to go, you know, rescue his grandchildren from, from, from the bandits what happens later? I mean, you, you, if, you, if they don't do that, and like I said before, does a, a group of NPC adventurers do it and get the glory, and now they've got rivals, you know, for for every job that comes up, or does the old man go and do it himself and get himself killed, and they come back and discover not a wedding but a funeral, or you know, Or, or, or do the kids join the bandits and you find out later, you know, much later that now there are the, the, these teenage bandits that you could have put on a right path, you know, maybe that's not interesting to some people, but it, that's the kind of things I was thinking about is that, you know, when you choose one path, that means you've chosen not, not chosen another. Um, and, and if you could run your campaign world in a way that it's kind of a living world where there's a consequence for every those choices either way. And you make note of the interesting ones that happen because they can come back later to just sort of reinforce this as a living, breathing world where time passes um, and things change. So, is that a story game? I don't know. Um, as much as I like the gamey aspects of D&D and I think we can get bogged down too much into, you know, weeping and gnashing of teeth and pulling at our hair over was well, that meta you know we don't want a metagame we don't want to get you know we, we don't want to get you know <laughs> we, we don't want to um turn 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 a, a fantasy adventure game or a role-playing game into a storytelling game it does get kind of boring if there's not at least some storytelling that comes out of it even if it's more emergent right um to just completely say well we're not going to there's, this is in no way, absolutely, shape, or form a storytelling game. Um, you know, I think I think the games can be kind of boring if there's not some element of that. Not some element of that. It doesn't have to. You don't have to be heavy-handed or really rich. Because some people would just like a casual game where they don't have to think about that. They don't have to follow complex plots and and uh, campaign world lore and history and things like that. That's fine. Um, but. 
if you got players who do engage with that stuff and do like it, it's cool to, to kind of keep that world moving along regardless of what they, well, not, not regardless of what they do. It moves along with what they do. And, you know, they can affect some things and the, the things they choose not to interact with get grow and change and develop in a different way. Um, so at this point I'm rambling, so it's time to, to, uh, to stop the episode. <laughs> I want to thank, uh, thank everybody for listening. And I want to thank, uh, Carl Rodriguez and Jason Connerly and, um, and Daniel Norton for their calls and zeroing in on 100. Do you guys have any suggestions or shout outs for, for episode 100, one year anniversary? You got a few days to get them into me. So take care out there and I'll be back later. And that's it for this episode of The Arcane Alienist. I want to thank Dave Bone for the cover art that I use for the episodes. Check out ironseer.com. And the music is Come and Get It by Scott Holmes Music. Uh, Thank you for listening. Uh, Give me a call sometime through the Anchor app or at the Anchor website. And I'll be back in the future with another episode.